morning. Is this on? Okay. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. And please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, we give you thanks and we bless you for the opportunity this morning to hear your word, to sit under your word. Lord, we pray that you would be present by the power of your spirit in our midst. Lord, awaken us to sins in our lives. Show us areas where we are falling short of your glory and the the honor of the gospel that we have believed. Lord, we pray this morning that you would cause dead men to come awake, that you would help us, Lord, as we continue to strive after you. Lord, give us desires, give us a yearning to know you more, to be closer to you, Lord, even in the difficult areas of life. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's always a pleasure to be with you. This morning I'm going to be preaching from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. But you have all heard the phrase, and I know you've heard it from me because I've said it here a bunch of times, but context is king. And so before we get to Matthew chapter 8, I just want to get us up to speed with what Matthew is doing through the gospel prior to this. So beginning in Matthew chapter 1... We have the genealogy. But what three things do we learn about Christ from this genealogy? First, we learn that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ was a a category within Judaism that means the anointed one. The Christ was who the Jews were looking forward to who would be a king after King David. So King David is promised a son who will sit on the throne Forever, Israel up until this point has been awaiting this king. And now here we have Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Anointed One. Matthew pushes this further by identifying Him as the son of Abraham and the son of David. Abraham was the forefather of the nation of Israel through whom Isaac came. Isaac being the child of promise. It is promised that through Isaac will come kings and nations and that he will be a blessing to the whole world. But at this point in Israel's history, they have been utterly destroyed by the Babylonians and ransacked by nation after nation for hundreds of years until we get to this point when they are under the rule and subjugation of the Roman Empire. So how, they're wondering, could it be that Israel will be a blessing to the nation? But here we have the true son of Abraham. Even Isaac in his existence is pointing to the reality and the coming of something greater. Next, Christ is connected to King David. He is the son of David. And again, we've already alluded to the fact that David was promised a son who would sit on the throne forever. That wasn't Solomon, because Solomon reigned for something like 40 years and then died. That was not any of the children of Solomon or those kings following Solomon as they had died and died and died and died and the the monarchy had been utterly destroyed in 586 when Israel was taken into captivity into Babylon. 
But here we have the Son of David. The true Son of David who will sit on the throne forever. Matthew then goes through that genealogy. Now, I don't know how many of you love reading genealogies, but I do not. I remember one of the first times I picked up the Bible, my grandparents told me to start in the New Testament. So I opened to Matthew, and I have so-and-so begetting so-and-so begetting so-and-so begetting so-and-so, and I made it about six verses and said, I'm done with this. But this genealogy at the beginning of Matthew is incredibly significant as Matthew is demonstrating that this man, Jesus, whom we have seen, whom we have heard, whom we have touched with our own hands, this man, Jesus, is truly the son of Abraham and the son of David. This genealogy demonstrates his connection to those two covenantal heads and demonstrates the culmination of all of the Old Testament in this man. From there, you have the visit of the wise men, these wise men from pagan nations, worshiping the true king of Israel when his own king Herod is going to try and kill him. Jesus has to flee from Israel to Egypt for fear of his life. All the while, the wise men worship. John the Baptist is in these days. John is one of the greatest figures. Jesus says he is the greatest man born of woman. And yet John the Baptist says, my entire purpose here is to be a signpost. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Disney World. I have not. But it would seem ridiculous to me if you were driving on the highway, you hit a sign that said Disney World 100 miles that way, you got out of the car, took some pictures of the sign, took some selfies with the sign, and then turned around and went home. It would be ridiculous, right? Because the sign is pointing you to the greater reality. John the Baptist is the greatest man born among women, and he himself says, I am simply a sign. I am pointing to someone who is so great, I am not even worthy to tie his sandals. And at the baptism of Christ, John says, here he is. Not only does John say, here he is, but the Father says overhead, here is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. God Himself bears witness to this man. Jesus then is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. Oftentimes we hear these passages preached as, well, Jesus fought temptation with Bible verses, therefore you also fight temptations with Bible verses. That's true. But the point of this passage is not that Jesus just simply fights temptation. The point of the passage is, at every point that Adam and Israel failed, Jesus Christ succeeds. We had a covenant head in Adam. And Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and was kicked out of the garden. And every successive generation has been polluted and corrupted by sin. And we stand in Adam's shadow as children of Adam. But here we have Christ who fasted for 40 days, who is tempted in every way by Satan himself and he resists and resists and resists all in the significance of saying, here is the righteous one. Adam was the first head. Here is the Christ. In Him there is true righteousness. Christ is not just a moral example, but He is the one from whom we can truly receive righteousness because He Himself is righteous. 
Following this, Jesus stands on the mountain with the body of people before Him and begins proclaiming the Word of God. Sounds an awful lot like Moses, doesn't it? Because what Matthew is doing is he is holding up Jesus, I think in light of Deuteronomy, where Moses says, expect a prophet like me, but one greater than me. Now here we have Christ standing on the mountain, declaring the Word of God as the new and greater Moses. And what is the response of the people? Chapter 7, verse 42. This man teaches, not like our scribes and Pharisees, But this man teaches as one with authority. The prophets of the Old Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees could stand before you just as I can stand before you and say, thus says the Lord. But Jesus stood before the congregation before Him and said, so say I. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Jesus is able to declare these things Because Matthew is demonstrating that as the new Moses, his authority is the very authority of God. And it's this idea of authority that we pick up with in our passage this morning, looking at chapter 8. So prior to this, Jesus has demonstrated that he has authority over sickness. He's demonstrated that he has authority to call the centurion. The centurion says, I recognize that you are a man under authority. Jesus demonstrates that he has authority over sickness, that he has authority over death. And now we come to our passage. Looking at Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. The point of this section is true discipleship costs you everything. True discipleship costs you everything. Prior to this, Jesus has demonstrated His authority over various sort of inanimate things. But here, Jesus Christ is demonstrating His authority to go to anyone and command them to follow Me and righteously so. Later in the New Testament, we will learn that all knees will bow before this man. Christ has ultimate authority. And so Jesus has given this command to follow me, and specifically, He's given the command to His disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side. And they obey. Now, we're not told where this boat came from or where these men are even headed. Simply, get in the boat and go. Discipleship begins with hearing the Word of Christ and our response to that is obedience. And that's what Matthew is doing here. As he is presenting Christ, this whole thing is led to lead us to this this crucial point when we see Christ in the Gospel and we have to make a decision, what am I going to do with this? Jesus is being held forth here, and we're going to see it, with divine authority, with a divine commission. Am I going to reject Him and walk away? 
as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders and the Israelites crucified Him? Or am I going to embrace Him and get in the boat like His disciples? And two men hear Christ's command and they approach Jesus and they want to follow. Now it's here that we see an interesting point about Jesus. Because if a modern preacher had gotten up, given a gospel proclamation, and three people had walked forward, and he's, what the modern preacher would think, great, we've got the foundation of revival. He'd be ecstatic. He would help them pray the prayer. He would carry their luggage, get them on the boat, and start moving them forward. And especially if you think about it, one of these men is described as a scribe. Now, scribes during this time would have been part of the Jewish religious elite. So they could even think something like, well, now our movement is starting to get traction. And if we could get a a couple scribes and Pharisees on board, then maybe this whole thing would start to look really good and we might actually be successful. That would be a a possible mindset of a a modern preacher. But that's not Jesus' mindset. Jesus does not rush them forward. Jesus does not even extend an invitation. Instead, Jesus warns them about the cost of discipleship. You see, Jesus was not roaming around the countryside pining for followers and begging people to jump on His cause and partner with Him. Nor did the success of Jesus' ministry even depend upon the number of persons of stature who would come on board with Him. Jesus knows that the road of discipleship is long and hard. And that many people set out and many people fall away. Discipleship is not simply praying a prayer and going to church on Christmas and Easter and then disregarding every word of Jesus at every point else during the year. Through these men, Jesus is going to demonstrate the reality of discipleship. Now, again, the first man who approaches Jesus in verse 19 is a scribe. And as I said, the scribes and the Pharisees would have been part of the upper crust of the religious elite at this time. And Matthew has a lot to say about these men. Generally, when these men approach Christ, they approach Him and and call Him teacher, teacher, teacher. But what does Christ's disciples approach Him with? Lord, Lord, Lord. Lordship, the true discipleship is a recognition of and a submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this is demonstrated as Christ's committed followers address Him as Lord. This man says that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes, which that seems like a committed statement, right? Anywhere you go, Jesus, I will follow you. But Jesus sifts through this and gets straight to the heart in verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Now think about this for a moment. What does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus had nowhere to lay His head? Does this mean that Jesus was living in the proverbial cardboard box throughout all of Judea? No, Jesus had many places to lay His head. He could have gone into the homes of various followers. He could have even returned to His parents' home. The the point of this is getting at something so much deeper. So think for a moment, what does a hole represent for a fox? Or what does a nest represent for a bird? Much more than simply a place to lay their head, these things represented a place of shelter, a place of safety, a place of security. These things represent something akin to what we might call a home. 
Jesus is not simply saying to these to this man, if you want to follow me, you need to abandon your possessions. Rather, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you need to surrender your sense of a security, you need to surrender your ultimate allegiance, and you need to redefine your entire existence in light of me. Which is going to result in this grand sense of displacement. I don't know if you've ever heard the song, This World is Not My Home. I'm just passing through. My home is somewhere beyond the ocean blue. I know I just butchered those lyrics. But that is getting at the heart of this. This world is not our home. Our allegiance to Christ is a renunciation of seeking utopia now. It's a renunciation of seeking our ultimate aim and our ultimate ends in this world and pursuing them in Christ's ultimate aim and ultimate ends, which is the kingdom of heaven. It is laying aside and redefining our entire earthly existence no longer with us at the center as the king of our own lives, but with Jesus Christ at the center and Him defining the boundaries and circumscribing our paths. That's what the call to discipleship is. It's not Jesus plus everything else I've got going for me. It's Jesus. Following Christ. Following Christ's commands. To follow Christ is to reorient every relationship in your life. Your relationships with people, your relationships with possessions, your relationships with your finances. It reorients everything around Christ's ultimacy and not our own. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ is turning away from and renouncing our sin. But it is oh so much more than that. Before coming to Christ, we were slaves of our lust. We were slaves of our sin. We were prisoners of, of Satan's. And our priorities and our desires flowed out of that reality. But when Christ changes our heart, when we behold His glory and we pursue Him and we follow Him onto the boat, so to speak, it translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and we become Totally new people. And now for some of us, that's much more of a process than for others. But there is a, 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 a fundamental, a gut level shifting of where do we look for authority? Am I the ultimate authority or is Christ and His Word the ultimate authority? Submission to Christ is a radical reorientation of your entire life around Him. And now think about this scribe. As a fixture of Israel's religious culture, his entire living, and his entire place of security was grounded in the, the Jewish religious powers and authorities at play. For him to reorient his life radically around Christ would, would be much, much more than just losing a house or losing a few possessions. It would be to totally change the trajectory of his entire life. And that is what Christ is calling us to this morning. And we have some in our midst, we have also read the stories of many people whose lives have been radically transformed by Christ. Attorneys and businessmen who can no longer do the sorts of things that they are asked to do by their places of employment because they know that to do so is to transgress the Lord who bought them. Zacchaeus is a perfect example. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And, and in the, the New Testament, the idea of being a tax collector would have been synonymous with being a swindler. 
So you have Zacchaeus who is a swindler. Zacchaeus sees Christ. He repents of his sins. His life is so radically transformed that he pays back everything that he stole. That is the cost of discipleship. That is true discipleship. But throughout the Gospels, this theme of discipleship is never separated from the Lord of glory. And you see that here. So Christ calls this man. He calls all people to follow Him. This man says He wants to. But Jesus then warns him with this identification of Himself. The Son of Man. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In Daniel chapter 7, we have this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In this very phrase, Jesus is declaring Himself to be the universal King. And and inherent in that is that we will all submit to the authority of Christ in one way or another. But think of Christ as the universal King. How How do worldly kings generally wield their power and their authority? Through subjugation through servants. Often rulers use their position of power to gain wealth and influence. And even think in America where we have a a republic, generally speaking, the senators and the representatives live higher on the hog than the majority of the people that they serve in their districts. I would guess most of them do. But Jesus, the universal King, is standing before this man saying that you need to lose everything that you have for the sake of the kingdom just as I myself have done. Jesus could have come. He could have installed Himself as the King of the whole world. And yet Jesus comes humbly. Jesus comes as a servant. Jesus ultimately comes to die a horrific death on the cross. And all of this is portraying the glorious and the glory and the righteousness of this king that we serve. And in the call to discipleship is simply a call for us to emulate Christ in every single aspect of our lives. Discipleship will cost you everything in that it will point you not to live for yourself, but to live for Christ. And then Matthew shows us this from a different angle with the next man. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now there are a few important things for us to note here. First, this passage might make it seem like Jesus is a little bit harsh. And so the scholars will try to soften this by questioning the sincerity and the motives of the disciples standing in front of Jesus. I, I think, though, that these debates miss the point of the passage. You see, this point, the point of this passage is not highlighting the motives or the intentions of the disciples, those seeking Jesus. Rather, this passage is highlighting the cost and image of true discipleship, which is immediate and ultimate submission to Jesus Christ. This passage stands as an example of what Jesus says a little later on in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says there, 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This man is being presented with the authority of Christ in the command of Christ. And Jesus here is setting himself on a higher plane even than family allegiances. For the disciple, Jesus is more important than his family ties. And now, I know we've all heard many, many stories. And and I know of individual Muslims who have come to faith and who have been afraid to go home and visit family for fear that they would be stoned because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Discipleship, that is being a real Christian, will cost you everything. But the fact of the matter is, when Jesus calls, you must go. No matter the difficulty, no matter your own desires, no matter your own circumstances. And this man finds himself in a difficult situation because for the Jew, the taking care of your parents in their last moments and in their death was in a sense the final observance of the command to obey your parents. That in taking care of their bodies, making sure that they are properly buried, is the the last act of honoring father and mother. And Jesus is standing there saying, I am even more important than your traditions. That is where Christ is setting Himself. In Matthew 18-22, through Jesus is demonstrating, or Matthew is demonstrating through this... this, this, um, Narrative that Jesus has authority to demand everything of you and that true discipleship, that is the normal Christian life, is living in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of your life. When a question about desires comes up, when a question about life decisions or ultimate directions come up, the question that the disciple asks is, what does Jesus Christ say? And the heart of the disciple is no matter what, I will obey Him. I will obey His Word. When we are tempted to cheat, or when we are tempted to commit adultery, or when we are tempted to prioritize and prize prestige, status, fame, all of these things above our Christian commitments, the heart of the true disciple is what does Christ say? And then it is obedience. Christ mediates His sovereign rule through the Word that is the Bible. And the heart cry of the true disciple is, what does the Word of God say? And now I find that that questions and questioning myself can be very helpful in these endeavors. So I just want to ask you a couple questions. How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in your relationship to your spouse or your children? How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in your use of your free time, in the way that you interact with your coworkers or your bosses, or if you are a boss or a manager, how does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in how you interact with your employees? Those are only the beginnings of some of these questions. But these are the types of questions that we need to ask ourselves as we lay ourselves bare before the Lord of the universe. And the reality is that some of us don't want to dig into that because we're afraid of what we might find. But God Himself knows the hearts of men. 
God already knows what's there. Do we not also want to know and to lay that bare before the Lord in His sovereign grace and kindness? Discipline is painful for the moment. Discipline hurts and is hard in the moment, but pays massive fruits and dividends long term. Presumably, you would think that these men, hearing what Christ is saying to them and understanding that in their context, are sitting there thinking, is it worth it? This man doesn't just want me to follow him on a boat. This man wants my entire allegiance. He wants my entire being to be wrapped around him. And interestingly, we are never told whether these two individuals get on the boat or not. And I think that is intentional. I think Matthew intentionally does that so that we have to ask ourselves, am I following? Will I follow? Jesus has commanded us to do many, many things. If I identify myself as a disciple, am I following Him as a disciple? But as the story ends, just as simple as that, Jesus and His disciples get on the boat and look at where He leads them in verses 24 and 25. Starting 23. And when he got onto the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, that is Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. These disciples who got on the boat had counted the cost. They have heard everything that Christ has said prior to this point. They have laid down their lives and they have followed Jesus. And look at where Jesus leads them. He leads them onto a boat straight into the heart of a storm. And Is that ironic at all? And I think it is. And I think it's intentional on the part of Christ. You see, the second point is this. True discipleship is the road through storms. Think for a minute about the men on the boat. The most prevalent occupation amongst them would have been fishermen. And they were all men of this region, so they knew the sea. They had been on boats for probably decades, some of them. They knew the rigging, they knew their ships, they knew the storms, they knew the water, the currents, all of these things. These men had probably lived on the Sea of Galilee. So they would have known about storms. Especially because storms in this region were a fairly regular occurrence. The Sea of Galilee sits in the sort of basin of a a mountain range around it. So you have very cold air and very warm air both mixing together, which is the mixture for a storm. Secondarily, the issue is is that this seven-mile sort of diameter lake or sea is only about 140 feet deep. So it's a relatively shallow body of water. Think about creating waves sitting in a bathtub versus creating waves sitting in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. I can create a lot more violent waves in a bathtub than a swimming pool. And that's the sort of mixture you have here. But these men would have been very familiar with storms because storms were a regular occurrence. These men knew the sea. They knew the storm. They knew their rigging. But this time was entirely different. This time the boat is being swamped by the winds and the waves. These sailors have, have exhausted every amount of ability. They are hanging onto the ropes, bare-knuckled, thinking this is the end. This is the end of all of it. We have counted the cost. We have followed Christ. We got on the boat. And here we are going to die and sink. And where is He? He's asleep. He's asleep in the bow. With the wind whipping and the rain driving, you can imagine 
the chill and the panic and the terror that would have overcome them. Now, whereas the disciples thought this was the end, Jesus Christ knew the end. And it wasn't in the Sea of Galilee, but it was on a cross in Jerusalem. And it is not an accident that this account follows on the heels of the call to count the cost of following Jesus. Because the path of discipleship is not a path with buffer zones and padding. The path of discipleship is fraught with danger, challenges, and struggles. Storms will rage all around us. We will feel like the disciples clinging to the ropes, clinging to the side of the boat for dear life, thinking that this is all going to capsize and this is when it's all going to come to an end. And these storms are not accidental. They don't just happen to the disciples. But these storms are the instrumental means that the Lord uses to demonstrate our genuineness and to refine our faith. The Lord does not lead the disciples into this storm because He is angry with them. The Lord leads the disciples into this storm because He wants to show them something. How we weather the storms is a critical indicator of the truthfulness of our discipleship. We we are familiar with the parable of the sower casting seeds on various kinds of soil. But think about the seeds cast onto the rocks. They grow up very quickly, and when struggle and trial and difficulty come, they're choked out and they perish. They, They walk away. The word testing comes up over and over and over again. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The normal Christian life is a life lived with the expectation of struggle and difficulty and trial. The normal Christian life is lived in the crucible of the trial. Fiery trials are the expectation. They are not strange, but they are central to true discipleship. Also note that this word does not denote simply the trial of persecution, but various kinds of trials, as James says in in the first chapter. Whether the trial is a struggle against sin, or whether the trial is the death of a loved one, or, or a terrible job, or a horrible diagnosis, storms are the expectation of the Christian life. Difficulty is the expectation. Again, though, they are the instrumental means the Lord uses to build His disciples. Listen to James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Bible teaches that the road of discipleship is not marked by health, wealth, and prosperity, but by difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. Eventually, the rock is going to drop on all of us. The storms will rage. They will bring us to the end of our ability. They will bring us to the end of our rope. The the end where we say, I cannot save myself. Lord, I'm perishing. The road of discipleship will bring us there just as it brought the disciples there. Discipleship is not about storm avoidance, but it is about clinging to Jesus Christ through the storm. The disciples had struggled against this storm all the while Jesus had slept. And again, how many times do we get into the midst of a storm and feel as though Jesus is just simply sleeping in the bow of the ship? 
It doesn't matter how hard or how much we pray, it seems that no answer comes. No answer comes. No answer comes. We can have confidence, as the disciples had confidence, that Jesus is there. He doesn't always answer our prayers immediately. He doesn't always answer our prayers exactly the way that He wants. And He does not always calm the storm. Sometimes we cry over and over for months pleading and yet nothing. Think of Job. Job lost everything in the first two chapters. How many chapters later did he hear from the Lord? 36 chapters later. He doesn't hear from the Lord until chapter 38. So you have almost the entire book finished before Job finally has his question answered. Brothers and sisters, the only hope that we have is that we cling to Christ through the midst of the storm, knowing that He is there and that as the disciples, we cry, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Lord, save us. And Jesus may not always calm our storm. He may not answer every single prayer that we pray in just the way that we like, but we can have confidence that these storms serve a purpose, that these storms are for our good, that they are God's plan for us, that they have not caught Him by surprise. These verses demonstrate for us the truthfulness of things like Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Though the storm may take everything from us, it can never separate us from Jesus Christ. Or think Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. Words and promises like these must ground us in the midst of the storm as we struggle and cling to Christ. That is the normal Christian life. And the disciples are experiencing it. The disciples cry out. They wake Jesus up. And now, I don't know about you, but what would you be expecting? You're in the midst of a horrific storm. You have this man whom you've been with for maybe a year at this point asleep in the ship. And you cry, Lord, save us. What, what exactly do you think that he's going to do? If I'm asleep in the boat and you say, Alex, this boat is perishing, I'm going to get up and I'm going to start panicking too. But not Jesus. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus stands. First, he rebukes the disciples. Then he rebukes the storm. First, let's talk about the disciples. I've puzzled over this for a long time. Why would Jesus rebuke the disciples? Their nerves are frayed. They're utterly terrified. I, again, have never been in the middle of a boat in water that I can't see the sides of in a storm that I think is going to sink the whole endeavor. But they were. They were presently in this. And so as I have mulled this over, the rebuke, I think, for us is an incredibly gracious aspect. Because Christ rebukes the disciples. Oh, you of little faith, why are you panicking? And he does not turn, jump off the boat, and walk to land. He could have, but he doesn't. 
He stays in the boat with the disciples and calms the winds and the waves. And this is telling for us, because how many times have you been in the middle of personal trial, personal storm, and you have prayed the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You're clinging to the ropes and you feel like everything is falling apart. And the last thing on earth that you are thinking about is your faithfulness or your desire to know Christ. All you can say is, Lord, keep me alive. Is that sinful? Yes. Does Christ's grace cover those moments? Yes. Because Jesus knows that we are man. Jesus knows that we were fashioned from the dust. Jesus knows all of these things. And even in the midst of our doubt and our despair and our faithlessness, Christ remains faithful, clinging to us even when we cannot cling to Him. Christ's rebuke of the disciples might seem harsh, but it's actually a gracious thing. It is gracious that Jesus rebukes them and then does not leave them, but that He rebukes them and then stays with them, even through more failing after more failing after more failing. And then He turns to the storm. He rebukes the disciples and then He rebukes the storm. And again, what what would the expectation have been? Lord, we're perishing, save us. I mean, help us swim to shore. Did they think He was going to stand and calm the winds and the waves? Only the Lord, through the Old Testament, has power over the winds and the waves. Listen to Psalm 107. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves in the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Only the Lord has the power to generate storms and to calm storms. And now the disciples behold who it is that is in the boat with them. This is a man who has authority not just over sickness, not just over the centurion, not just over demons and other things. This man has authority over the most powerful forces of all of nature. And he is standing in the boat with us. And it leaves the disciples marveling. And that ultimately for us, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate aim of the storm. And the ultimate goal of discipleship. We have talked a lot about the cost of discipleship. And the question is, well, if we're losing everything, are we gaining anything? Or is the Christian life just this sort of bizarre call to masochism? And it's not. Right? Because at the end of the road, the result of all of this is that we get to behold Christ, that we get to know Jesus Christ, that we get to stand with Him in the boat and cherish Him as treasure forever. He is ultimately more valuable than anything that we could ever have or desire or want. I can say that. Bill Gates can say the same thing. He's the richest man on earth. Jeff Bezos. Any of those guys. To truly behold the glory of Christ is to say all of this wealth that I have amassed, all of these family relationships, all of these things that I have are nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Nothing. And so the, the call of discipleship is not just lose everything for the sake of losing it. The call of discipleship is renounce yourself and submit to Jesus Christ because He is infinitely more valuable than anything you can ever know or have or find on this side of the sun.
infinitely more valuable. And now again to think through this this issue of authority. And this this whole this whole passage I think starting at the end of chapter 7 going through chapter 8 coming to chapter 9 is culminating in chapter 9. When Christ heals a paralytic and he says to him rise and walk and the Pharisees are having a hard time with this and Jesus says this is chapter 9 verse 4. But Jesus knowing their thoughts said, "Why do you think evil in your hearts?" For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and went home. That's ultimately what this passage is driving to. Because yes, Jesus has authority over sickness. Yes, he has authority over death. Yes, he has authority over demons. Yes, he has authority over the weather. But more significantly than any of this, Jesus has the authority as God to forgive our sins. And the reality of this, brothers and sisters, is that a storm is coming. A storm is coming that we can foresee in the distance. A storm is coming that we know is true. A storm is coming that will pale in comparison to any storm that we could face in this life. And that is the storm of God's righteous judgment and His vengeance against sinners. And the only one who has authority to quell that storm, the only one who has authority to say, peace be still, is the man who himself bore that storm on our behalf so that in him we might have those sins forgiven and that God's wrath might be quelled for us. That's what this whole passage is driving to. The cost of discipleship is seeing and cherishing Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship is the healing of the fracture of that relationship that was torn when we spurned God and we said, I want nothing to do with your leadership. I want nothing to do with you. I will be the king of my own life. That caused a fracture. Jesus Christ has come to mend that fracture. Through His torn body, through His shed blood, we can be brought back into fellowship with God. Christ is the only one who has authority to fix that tear. Christ is the only one who has authority to bring us into the throne room of grace so that we may stand and sing praises and plead for mercy from our great God and Father. Only Jesus Christ has authority to do that. And this whole Gospel narrative is driving to that point with the authority of the forgiveness of sins. But ultimately, this whole Gospel narrative is driving us, starting with, with Matthew one twenty one, that Jesus is the one who will forgive their people for their sins or who will, will heal their sins. That That is all driving us to that moment when those sins are finally atoned for, when they are finally healed. And that is when the true Lamb of God is crushed for sinners. At the end of the Gospel narrative. And so this whole thing is pointing us to this. And this whole thing is pleading with us. It is showing us the glory of Christ. It is saying, here He is. He is the only one who can satisfy everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever desired. Here He is. Is it worth it? Have you counted the cost? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Or have you spurned and questioned and walked away from His entrance onto this boat?
We know that this road of discipleship is going to cost us everything. We know that, that it will ultimately, and life ultimately, is going to take from us everything in death. But the question is, is have you counted the cost and have you found Jesus worthy of all of it? And that is the question that Matthew would have us ask ourselves this morning as we continue to contemplate and consider in worship. And so I would press that question on you. Does the Son of Man have authority to forgive sins in your life? Have you chosen to follow Him? Have you picked up your cross and followed Him? Or are you continuing to resist, continuing to resist? Because only Jesus has the authority to forgive sins before God. Please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, we thank You for the wonderful gift that You have given us. We praise You for the act of self-sacrifice on our behalf, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might know You and find in You eternal life, eternal joy, eternal satisfaction. Lord, we pray this morning that You would be our strength, that You would be our portion forever, Lord, and that we would say, whom have I on heaven, or what have I on earth or in heaven besides You? Lord, that You would be our all in all, that we would seek our joy in You, and that we would trust You in the midst of every difficulty that we face. Lord, continue to walk by us, and continue, Lord, to receive joy in the praises of Your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.